This is the second episode in the series of My Vineyard. We said in our last episode that it was so important for us to remember the vineyard is not exclusively one aspect of truth, but many. We saw in the first episode that the vineyard can apply to the human heart the heart of those that love God and serve God and want God and know God. And we all have a vineyard that has been well watered by the Spirit of God. The seed within the vineyard is the Word of God. And we have a responsibility to cultivate that, to care for that seed, to watch over it, to nurture it, and to indeed make sure that it's weeded from the thorns, the briars, and any other obnoxious weeds that would choke the life out of the vineyard. And of course, we have that parable of the sower and the seed as one of our guides. We don't want to be shallow, showing an immediate rush of faith and devotion only to peter out and die. Oh no, we want something that produces good fruit. And that's what John 15 is all about, isn't it? John chapter 15, I'm turning to that. Perhaps you'd like to do that too. And right there in verse 1, Jesus in the upper room discourse talks very, very intimately about how the lives and the heart and the attitudes of the heart of believers is to be cultivated and protected and nurtured and blessed. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And so we have the beginnings of a beautiful analogy where he's speaking of the vineyard, the vineyard of Jesus, the human heart that's been born again, cleansed from sin, who has received with readiness and joy the implanted seed of both the Word of God and the redemptive spirit. I am the vine, the true vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. And this is what we saw last episode in Isaiah chapter 5, when he came to his vineyard, which was Israel, seeking fruit, seeking an abundance of fruit. He'd done his part. He planted it on the side of a hill to get the dew in the morning, the rain in its season, the beautiful, fresh, fragrant air. And when he came and tasted the grapes on the vine, they weren't sweet. They weren't luscious. They weren't satisfying. They were sour. And it put his teeth on edge. Now, the consequence of that is the nation of Israel had become self-serving. What a terrible thing when you are the recipient of the blessing of God, 
and the grace of God has been so apparent to you and you've just got used to it and you've just taken it as your due that God, well, so he should bless you because he has promised and you are his child. And there comes a sense of, well, God has an obligation. God has no obligation towards us because it's grace. You see, obligation comes from when you pay your dues or you pay your way and therefore expect quite readily and realistically a return on your investment. But you see, as the hymn writer says, we come to him just as we are, without any plea of self-righteousness, just as I am without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me. We come in simplicity, based wholly on the invitation of love and mercy. We come into his presence initially, and we should daily recognize that everything that has come to us, every blessing, every outpouring of grace, is just that, the unmerited favor of God. Well, Israel had wandered many times. They were very, very, very easily caught away with lesser things. And he says, well, I will break down its wall. I will take away its hedge. In other words, Israel, through its disobedience and because of the nature of the poor harvest, they will have their protection removed. And all too eagerly are these marauding nations, these heathen nations, who are waiting poised to pounce on the one that is so loved by God and planted by God, but who has in some way, shape or form presumed on God. Oh, let it not be our heart. Let's learn a lesson from this Israel of old who just presumed. Now, let's talk about Israel even today. If you were to go to Israel today and you were to engage in conversation, as I have many times, you'll find more or less two types of Jewish people when it comes to the things of God, when it comes to spirituality, when it comes to an understanding of the Torah, the Word of God. And what is it? Well, some of them are merely conversant Jews. Oh yes, from their earliest days, they've been schooled in the ways of God and the messages of the prophets and the patriarchs and Moses and the law particularly. They know about the law and the offerings. They know about the feast days. They might even know, if they're truly conversant, they may even know the significance of those feasts that come every year at the prescribed time. They may know that. 
because you see they're conversant Jews but as far as touching their heart no no uh, they will tell you many times very very strongly very openly almost brashly they will say to you oh, no I'm I'm not an observant Jew I'm a conversant Jew in fact I've got it up here in my head but I don't follow in any way shape or form the demands of the law I have no desire for anything that is enshrined in the word of God, the Tanakh. I'm not interested. I'm not interested in any of those things. I'm living my life. I'm doing my thing, though I have an understanding, broadly speaking, of the demands of Scripture. So he or she is a conversant Jew. They, they're aware but of course, as the prophet said, this people draw near with their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. Conversant. Having a knowledge, but it's a knowledge of the head, not the heart. And then there's the broad range of observant Jews. There are many that are what we call Orthodox Jews, and even within Orthodoxy, there are many sects. And you will see them walking the streets of Jerusalem or anywhere where they live. They choose to live separately from their fellow Jews. They don't want to be contaminated. They don't want to be in any way, shape or form exposed to the worldly Jew or worldliness at all. And so they have very strict laws that they attend to and comply with and give themselves to. And they will do amazing things. If you go on Sabbath through their area, if you drive through their area, you might find a stone coming flying through the air, hitting your car, your vehicle, or your windscreen. These people are observant to almost an alarming degree. And then there are observant Jews who are more liberal and more modernized, and they have a, a different approach. And if you get to know them, they are the ones that you can probably talk to more freely. And they are not forbidding. They don't see you, if you're a Gentile, as a Gentile dog and to be avoided. They'll talk to you. And they'll talk to you about their observances of both the law and the prophets. So we have the conversant Jew, the one that's got it in the head but not the heart, and the observant Jew who's got it in the heart and the mind and is sincerely devoted to the things of God as they understand it. Now many of those people are really in a continual search for the things of God. And their vineyard is largely, personally, unspoiled. They are seeking God. They are asking him to reveal himself through the sacred scriptures and by the Spirit and prepare them and make them alert, attuned and aware of Messiah's coming. So that's a great common ground that we can have 
with these observant and, well, the Orthodox would call them liberal Jews, who have a modernized and an easier approach to the things of God as they see it. Now, we have that same line of division in the Christian church. When you take Christendom with all its varying shades and flavors and frameworks, you have the ecclesiastical church, the sacramental church, you have the evangelical church, the Pentecostal church, you have cults, you have sects, you have all kinds of aspects and variations in the church. And in that great conglomerate of, of different people, all claiming to be part of the kingdom of God, you'll find that some are, like the Jew, conversant, but not observant. Now, what about this word observant? What does it actually, what does it actually mean? Well, we go back to Joshua and the very first chapter, and I'm turning to that now. And we have the words of God to Joshua and through him as leader of Israel to Israel itself. And he says these words. Now Moses, my servant, is dead. That's verse 2, chapter 1. Now therefore arise and go across this Jordan and into the land which I am giving to you. Yes, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. So it's, it's more territory then and in the will of God than it is today as legalized by the United Nations and the nations. And he goes on to say these words. This is the quality of the vineyard that he's planting in Israel. He says these words. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. Did you get that? It's not that you're just conversant mentally, but that you are to observe what you have heard. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do it according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now this is the promise of God to not just those that are conversant, that have got it in their intellect or their mind or their memory, but those that have got it both there and in their heart, observing to do 
according to all that is written in it, because there's a blessing. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. Have not I commanded you, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now the problem in Isaiah's day is that Israel had departed from observing and was at the best conversant but not observant. Pray that that will never be your experience as I pray that it'll never be mine. I don't want to just have a head knowledge, an intellectual appraisal of the Word of God. I want to know it in my heart and have this devotional, this love relationship with God so that I can fulfill what we read in the last episode in John's Gospel, chapter 14 and verses 21 and 23, where loving God, serving God, knowing God, adoring God, obeying God and walking in that obedience based on the foundation of love that we personally, we personally will have the manifest presence of the Godhead. I was telling some people not long ago, perhaps in our Bible study on a Wednesday night, that some despicable things happened during the Second World War when Nazi Germany overtook with great stealth and power so many of the Central European nations and the Eastern European nations and established their cruel rule in those nations. And then they set up killing fields. And not only killing fields, but also they set up what we knew, generally speaking, as concentration camps that became death camps because they had such a hatred for the Jew and the gypsy and anybody that opposed them in any way, shape or form. And the story is told, and I read the memoirs, of uh, the commandant for some time at Auschwitz and Birkenau, which was the extermination camp and work camp for Jews that came in their droves. They were brought on trains mainly and dumped there. And they were, if they were able, put to work, if not able, because they were old or too young or infirm or whatever, they went immediately to the gas chambers. And Rudolf Hoss was the commandant for quite some time. And after the Second World War, he was arrested. He went on trial. He was condemned to death. And for the months that he was waiting for his execution, during his trial, he wrote his memoirs. And the chilling thing was that there was no hint in those memoirs of any, any repentance for what he had done and been responsible for. He gladly talked about how many people were exterminated, how he watched them. But then he said something that really caught my attention. He said there was a semblance, a small group of people that seemed to go into the death chambers, the gas chambers, almost with a sense of joy. 
They didn't just go doggedly because they had no alternative. They didn't go herded like beaten animals. They didn't go with their heads down and weeping and wailing and crying out or cursing God or man. These people were a very unusual people. They were people that just seemed to almost embrace the inevitability of their execution. And as they went into the chambers, they often were praying or singing hymns. They were not conversant Christians. They were observant and committed born-again Christians. And those that were of the Christian faith that knew their God and knew that however long it took for them to be murdered in those gas chambers, that when they were absent from the body, they would be present with the Lord. Such was the reality of those that were being slain who knew the Lord in reality. These people didn't just have a form of godliness, but denied the power thereof. There was reality in their hearts. There was an obvious understanding, not only in their head, but deep within their spirit, they had been awakened. And of course, the Bible speaks about that in Hebrews. And it's a beautiful thought. Have you ever contemplated it? Hebrews chapter 6. It speaks of the remarkable experience that we have as born-again believers. We have been brought from those that just did dead works, those that just had a formal type of approach to religion, however and howbeit Christian. We have something more than that. We have a living faith. We have an experience that is absolutely amazing. Because, you see, in the fourth verse of Hebrews 6, it says, this is what's happened to us. We have been enlightened. That means the eyes of our understanding have been opened, that we understand the reality and the glory of the kingdom of God. The Spirit of God has been active in our hearts and our minds and has awakened us to the glory that is in Christ. And so we've been enlightened. And through being enlightened, we have tasted the heavenly gift. And we have, as a consequence, become partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasting the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. So when confronted with death, be it through disease, be it through old age, and just approaching realistically the fact that we will depart this present world, or whether we are under threat, and annihilation, or even torture and murder. We know that when we die, we will become part of and will enter into the promises and the power of the age which is to come. How amazing is that? And that's what Rudolf Hoss was amazed at. 
He expected people to wail, to plead, to cry, to try and bargain or blackmail or threaten or curse as they went into the gas chambers. And many did do that. Many even forsook a conversant faith and cursed God as well as their Nazi captors. But there was this semblance, this this group of people, this remnant of true believers who seemed to almost embrace death as being as it is and as it's portrayed in the scriptures, the gateway into the eternal. So that's something better than being conversant. This is observant. And this is someone that just doesn't have a philosophy, but has reality within their heart. They have a redemption, they have a relationship, and they have a living hope. Now, unfortunately, in Isaiah chapter 5, Israel had somehow got into being merely conversant. Now, Judah had a little bit more light in its candle of faith. And though it flickered many times and sometimes looked as though it was going out, Judah was faithful up until the time when they were taken captivity into Babylonia. Now the Bible says here in verse 7 of chapter 5 of Isaiah, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are a pleasant plant. And he looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, ah, sadly, no. But there was a cry for help. And then he lists many of the things that Israel particularly, and sometimes Judah, had done that had brought them into disfavor how they had polluted their vineyard. And one of them was, sadly, materialism. And that's found in verses 8 through to 10. And yet God was going to blow on that fertile field and make it unproductive. Because, you see, they weren't bowing in Judah to foreign idols as they were in Israel because they were divided between Israel and Judah at the time. No, they, they had made another god, and that was the work of their hands. And the Bible says here in verse 15, People shall be brought down. Each man shall be humbled. Now let's go forward to Jesus' time. And Jesus spoke a lot about his second coming. And he carried a burden for Jerusalem, for all that Jerusalem is, which is the city of the great king. Yes, that's found in Psalm 48. The joy of the whole earth. And yet in his day, there was this same battle between conversant and observant Jews those that followed him avidly because they were beginning to love him and they saw in him the light of the glory of God. But others who unfortunately became full of animosity, oh, so angry, and of course with wicked hands, 
as Peter charges them in Acts chapter 2. With wicked hands you took the Prince of Glory and you cast him out and you cast him down and you crucified the Prince of Glory. And now Jesus says there's a day coming and he began to weep over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he's in the very hub. He's in the very centre of the vineyard, right in under the shadow of the temple of God. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have loved to gather you unto myself as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And now I leave you just as Isaiah prophesied. I leave you desolate. Our next episode will take us beyond that and we'll talk more about what Isaiah saw, what Jesus prophesied and what you and I are beginning to see in this day and age over 2,000 years after Jesus prophesied these things. Mm -hmm.